0: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at
1: TravelWyoming.com. I live by routines, but I especially love my same-day delivery routine with shipped, And my shopper knows this about me. When Sunday rolls around and I place my weekly stock-up order, Joe sends texts from the aisles. Wilted lettuce? Nah, uh Hard pass. Deal on my favorite sparkling water? Whew, grab two. Fresh flowers just because? Hmm, sounds like a delightful idea. If you love routines that work for you, get shipped same day delivery. Shipped, delight in every delivery. Learn more at ship.com/slash hi.
2: This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Sam Evans Brown, and this is producer Taylor Quimby.
3: You only have to count to three on the periodic table of the elements before you get to lithium. Hydrogen. Helium. Lithium. It's the lightest metal in the world. Light enough to float. Soft enough to cut with a butter knife. A silvery white that's almost luminous until it's exposed to air. With a single electron in its outer shell, an atom of lithium is also highly unstable. It wants to react to just about everything around it. So you won't find pure lithium in nature. It's always in disguise, dissolved in a saltwater solution or locked up in a crystal.
4: There's no lithium nuggets. There's no mines where you just go underground and hack out chunks of lithium ready to go. That's not not how it works.
3: This is Emily Hirsch, the self-styled first lady of lithium. She's a consultant who's worked in oil and gas and even gold.
4: That idea of pure lithium as a chunk of metal Um, only exists in specific laboratory conditions.
3: Pure lithium metal has to be kept in certain conditions so it doesn't react to air or water.
4: Because it'll burn. Or it'll catch on fire.
3: Which didn't stop me from ordering some off of Amazon.com just to see it for myself. Look at this. Yes, you can buy pure lithium on Amazon. It came in a tiny glass vial filled with mineral oil. I poured it into a metal pot full of cold water with my son. The lithium sizzled like garlic in oil, bubbled and steamed until there was nothing left to see. You can find more dramatic reactions on YouTube. Oh,
1: wow! Holy crap!
3: Despite its tendency to combust, lithium has had a lot of uses over the years to make specialized ceramics or glass, medication for bipolar disorder, in lubricants as a trigger for thermonuclear bombs. It was even an ingredient in the early formula for 7up.
5: 7up, so pure, so good, so wholesome.
3: But all those applications will be dwarfed in the coming years by its use in lithium ion batteries for electric cars.
4: You try to pick the element that is most changing the way that we as human beings interact with energy, It's lithium because lithium gives us the ability to pick energy up, carry it around and use it later.
3: Batteries are arguably the linchpin that binds our transition to renewable energy together. We need them to store the power from wind and solar, and we need them on the road. After all, cars and trucks account for a full 20 percent of all U.S. emissions. Moving away from gas vehicles is essential.
6: Can you hear me Ari? Right? Is my audio and everything coming in okay?
3: This is battery analyst Chloe Holzinger.
6: Uh, I am a senior analyst at IHS Market.
3: There are three things that car manufacturers want out of an electric car battery. First, energy density. How much energy you can cram into a defined space.
6: That really translates to, in a vehicle setting, that translates to how far can I go on a single charge?
3: The second thing is power.
6: And that's really how much of that energy can I get out of that battery? Um, At At any one
3: time, right. Yeah. Okay.
6: And then the third one is uh, cycle life.
3: That's how many times you can charge and discharge the battery before it starts to crap out.
6: Those are the three metrics that lithium ion batteries, you know, really kill it in.
3: No wonder some people call lithium white gold.
6: There's not really any technology out there that's going to, that has the ability to displace lithium ion in a vehicle application within the next, you know, 10, 15 years, I'd say.
3: And lithium-ion batteries get better and better every year. One hopeful Tesla competitor, a company called Lucid Air, says its first electric vehicle will get 500 miles on a single charge. That's far enough to get from New Hampshire, where I am right now, to Washington, D.C., with 10 miles to spare. So it's no wonder that after years of relatively slow growth, people are paying attention. Electric vehicles only account for about 2.8% of global car sales today, but the more optimistic reports suggest they'll outpace gas vehicles in 10 to 20 years. That means loads more batteries and loads more lithium. A few years ago, Tesla and Panasonic built what was then the biggest lithium-ion battery plant in the world, the Gigafactory in Nevada. Here's CEO Elon Musk.
1: It's actually gonna be, it's not just gonna be the biggest lithium-ion battery factory in the world, but it'll actually be bigger than the sum of all lithium-ion factories in the world.
3: Today, Tesla is building a new plant, this time in Austin, Texas, the Terra factory. When it's finished, Musk projects the factory will use as much as 800,000 tons of lithium annually. That's two and a half times current production for the entire globe.
1: So it's, it's, it's difficult to quite describe in words, but it's, it's, a, it's a heck of a big factory. Um.
3: So where's all that lithium gonna come from?
2: Today on Outside In, the lithium gold rush. In one version of a sustainable carbon neutral future, the world's cars will transition from fossil fuels to electricity. And right now, the vision of that world absolutely depends on the lithium ion battery. But when you try to square that world with the reality of the global lithium supply and what it takes to extract it, that vision is not so simple. Producer Taylor Quimby tells the story.
3: One problem, or let's say challenge, with transitioning to renewable technology is that the future may require way less fossil fuels, but it will require a monumental increase in these specific types of metals.
4: Graphite, lithium, cobalt, rare earths, scandium, copper, silver, platinum, palladium. The mineral intensity of those compared to now, in some cases, is 800 times what it is today.
3: Solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, they all rely on stuff that comes from mines.
4: I I think there's a cognitive dissonance in people in general that mining is a thing of the past or that mining is bad or that um, things don't come from mines. They came from a mine.
3: Laptops, tablets, smartphones, digital cameras, e-bikes, hoverboards, all these things contain lithium. But lithium isn't a raw commodity, like steel or coffee beans or natural gas. It can't be traded or passed around by and for different products. It's only useful when processed for particular uses, and for batteries, for particular battery chemistries. Compared to combustion engines, batteries might actually seem simple from an engineering perspective. But from the perspective of the supply chain, the steps required to buy, transport, manufacture, and assemble a product lithium ion batteries are arguably much more complex.
4: So the lithium battery supply chain has at least five specific stages. You've got your mineral extraction. Getting the
6: lithium out of the ground.
3: That's your mine, much more on this stage later. Step two.
6: You've got your lithium chemical production. The third step is really taking that lithium chemical and making a
3: cathode powder. Batteries have two sides, a cathode, an anode, and in between, an electrolyte.
4: Then you've got the battery cell makers.
3: Cells are maybe what you think of when you picture a battery, like a double or triple A.
6: And then from there, it's those cells are shipped to, you know, a final step. The battery pack makers.
3: For the longest time, I thought Tesla batteries were bigger versions of the one in my Honda Civic, one big square block. Instead, they're made up of more than 7,000 cylindrical cells, lined up and wired together in a thick casing that monitors and directs the work of the individual cells. This is the battery pack. It's a complex machine in its own right, and it's designed to be virtually indestructible. Remember the exploding Samsung phones from a few years back? That's what happens when your lithium-ion battery pack fails. But in the case of an electric car, well it looks like a flaming car.
7: (laughs) Oh, dude, that's a brand new car. Wow, I can feel the heat in here. Oh, that's a Tesla,
3: dude. (laughs) For the most part, each of these steps belongs to a connected but separate industry. Industries separated by expertise and equipment, and often by geography.
6: Today's lithium-ion battery industry is, you know, pretty heavily segmented by region.
3: The breakdown you're about to hear is a broad simplification, but generally speaking, it is true.
6: Lithium comes from South America and Australia. Cobalt comes from the Congo. Nickel comes from Indonesia. Um, The batteries get made in East Asia.
3: There are a lot of minerals we could have focused on for this episode. Cobalt, for example, which is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where issues around child labor have been raised by both critics and advocates for electric cars. Because of these issues, some, but not all, battery makers have effectively lowered or eliminated cobalt from their batteries. The reason we're sticking with lithium is that experts have told me that virtually everything in the lithium-ion battery can be substituted, except for lithium. In other words, whatever pressures the lithium supply chain is subject to now have to be addressed. But there is no central lithium planning committee that is balancing supply and demand or strategizing on how to extract it in ways that prioritize the environment or social justice. There's just the market and a patchwork of regulations that differ from place to place. So despite being so interconnected, links in the lithium supply chain are sometimes dangerously siloed. Chloe has been to industry conferences up and down the world of lithium. At electric car conferences, she says you'll see...
6: Demand charts just, like, exponentially increasing. Upstream at the battery conferences. It's like a bunch of nerds geeking out about, like, this is a cool battery chemistry. But all the
3: way at the source in the raw materials department.
6: And then you go to a lithium conference and it's it's a little more conservative. It's really a stretch to make that connection between the battery in your car and the mine where it comes out of. And I would say in my experience, the only people who uh, have regularly asked me questions about that um, tend to be oil and gas companies.
3: Oil and gas. Upstream from the green revolution is an industry that's still built on the principles of extraction an industry that hasn't moved as fast as the renewable tech on the other end. A surplus of raw lithium materials in recent years has made prices fall. That, in turn, slowed production. After all, why increase the supply if prices are low? But with demand expected to increase dramatically in the near future, there are fears that it will soon outstrip supply. Some analysts are projecting shortages of battery-grade lithium as early as 2022.
7: Um, there's a sand we have in jaws if you can't
3: grow it, it has to be mined. This is Smithsonian geologist Mike Wise. I called Mike because initially, I thought that a possible shortage of lithium had something to do with the mineral itself. After all, it is not exactly common.
7: It's uh, rarer than copper and gold, but probably more a little bit more abundant than, say, tin. It would probably rank somewhere like 20th
3: in overall abundance in the Earth's crust. I also called Mike because I, perhaps like many of you, had a sort of simplistic idea of what lithium mining entails. That lithium mines were underground holes where people with headlamps chip away at veins of lithium ore trapped in rocks. And while technically lithium can be found that way, in fact, it can be found everywhere on the planet, even in the ocean. To mine something, it has to be found in high enough quantities to be profitable. And for the rock formations that sometimes contain lithium, called pegmatites, that can be tricky. It's not easy. Um, Even
7: though pegmatites are widespread across the globe, uh, and and there are a very large number of them, too, by the way, they're not large
3: deposits. But the real factors leading towards a lithium shortage, I've learned, are economic, environmental, and essentially human. Mining pegmatites like mining gold or coal, is messy business. It involves open-pit mines, giant holes so big they could swallow mountains. Moving and digging all that rock requires loads of energy and produces tons of carbon dioxide. Waste includes heavy metals and acid drainage that contaminate earth and water. And eventually, mines run out and miners move on. From the 1950s until the 1980s, nearly all of the world's lithium was extracted from a pair of mines in North Carolina. All that was before 1991, when Sony released the first consumer product to use a lithium-ion battery, the Handycam camcorder. Since then, global lithium production has increased dramatically. But as demand has grown, and the products that lithium enables proliferated across the United States, lithium mining in America became virtually non-existent. So if we're not mining our own lithium, where is it coming from? And who is being affected?
7: It's hard for Perhaps listeners to understand just how remote of a location this is. This is 200-plus miles northwest of Las Vegas and 200-plus miles south of Reno. The nearest town is Dyer, which has maybe 100 people. This is Patrick
3: Donnelly, the Nevada State Director of the Center for Biological Diversity, an environmental organization that, in the pantheon of environmental organizations, stands out for prioritizing endangered species over land development, even if that development is for renewable energy. The place he's talking about is called Rhyolite Ridge, a long dry slope that lies on the western side of an ancient volcanic caldera. It's home to a little red and yellow flower called Team's Buckwheat.
7: It is about six inches tall when it's at full bloom, so that's a couple weeks a year. The rest of the year it could be just a couple inches tall of its foliage, or during the winter it's just a stump. Uh, so to be honest, except when the flowers are at full bloom, it's not much to look at.
3: The soil in Rhyolite Ridge has such high mineral content that most plants struggle to take root there. But there is one plant that thrives. Rhyolite Ridge is the only place in the world where you'll find Team's buckwheat.
7: There's six populations of the buckwheat, um, which are spread over a couple square miles. The mine's footprint, the open pit footprint, would encompass 85% approximately of the buckwheat's habitat.
2: Rising above the vast high desert between Reno and Las Vegas, Nevada, the 100% Ioneer-owned Rhylite...
3: Team's buckwheat grows on top of a mix of lithium and boron ore a deposit that a company called Ionear is hoping will be the first to bring US lithium mining back up to speed. It is expected to become a globally significant,
2: long-life, cost-effective source of critical lithium and boric acid, vital
3: to a sustainable future.
2: As the first
3: major American The mining of lithium and other metals is governed in the United States to this day by the General Mining Law of 1872. If you are a citizen of the United States over the age of 18, you have the ability to explore and prospect for silver, gold, platinum, tungsten, uranium, and more on federal lands and stake your claim. The price set in 1872 is between $2.50 and $5 an acre. The law has since been amended to exclude certain resources like petroleum and shale, but in a nutshell, what this means is that since 1872, companies and individuals have extracted hundreds of billions of dollars of natural resources on public lands, left thousands of abandoned mines sprinkled across the country, and paid the federal government next to nothing to lease that land. There have been lots of efforts to update these laws, originally created during the gold rush. There was the Hard Rock Mining and Reclamation Act of 2007, the Hard Rock Mining and Reclamation Act of 2009, of 2014, of 2015, and of 2017. All of them died in Congress, which helps explain why Patrick feels like the game is rigged.
7: Nevada is a banana republic for the mining industry. The mining industry runs this state, the mining industry owns our politicians, and the mining industry does whatever the hell it wants in Nevada.
3: That being said, staking a claim does not a mine make. Here again is Emily Hirsch.
4: Within a mining project's life, there is a prospecting phase. There is an exploration phase, there's a production phase, and then there's a mine closure phase.
3: The company that would eventually become Ioneer Ltd. was formed in 2007. They partnered with mining companies and started prospecting for mineral deposits.
4: So prospecting is just what it sounds like. It's a guy on a horse or a lady on a horse.
3: I'm not convinced that's actually the case. But regardless, it wasn't until 2016 that the company landed on Rhyolite Ridge. Nine years That's when the exploration phase begins. To
4: do exploration and to get one of those projects together, you're talking about, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of science.
3: This step includes drilling dozens of deep cores to figure out how big the deposit is and whether it will be profitable. It includes building a pilot plant, a miniature version of what could eventually become the processing arm for this lithium mine. Exploration seems like the wrong word. It's so technical.
4: And the typical exploration phase for a mine is somewhere between, I would say, between 7 and 10 years, easily.
3: So right now, 13 years after the company was first formed, Ioneer is still in the middle of this phase. And this is their first mine. They've spent many millions of dollars, and should everything go right, it'll be at least another three years before it's up and running by the time mining companies know whether a project will be profitable or not, they might have every incentive to plow forward and recoup their losses, flowers be
7: damned. So this is basically Ioneer's solution to the buckwheat problem. Their solution is, well, we can wipe it out in its native habitat and we'll just stick it somewhere else and call it good.
3: When Ioneer discovered that their mine project would cover most of the flower's habitat, they started funding studies at the University of Nevada to see if scientists could artificially cultivate and replant the buckwheat to another location. Early results are looking good, but through a right to know request, the Center for Biological Diversity in Nevada also obtained documents that reveal how Ioneer has pressured the scientists to release findings before that work is completed.
7: Ioneer is trying to use this science to greenwash the mine when the science itself is inconclusive, and I think. The thing that was most revealed by these records were that the researchers are deeply uncomfortable with being put in that position.
3: Patrick says that Ioneer is trying to use this early science to present an optimistic future and prevent team's buckwheat from being listed under the Endangered Species Act. Which, of course, is exactly what the Center for Biological Diversity is petitioning for.
7: Um, We recently got a positive initial finding from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, So that moves the buckwheat to a longer formal 12-month review period uh, for that endangered species status. So we will uh, be waiting for that.
3: If the flower gets listed, it could spell the end of the mine project at Rhyolite Ridge. Patrick, by the way, says that the Center for Biological Diversity is not inherently opposed to mining lithium.
7: Well, look, we are in a global extinction crisis. Uh, Biodiversity is what gives us clean drinking water and clean air to breathe and puts food on our table. And so if we let species go extinct um, because of our own desires, you know, we are threatening our own way of life on Earth. And so I hear you, we need lithium. There are many, many, many places to get lithium that don't have an endemic species of wildflower directly above them.
3: If this were a coal project, there would be little conflict for environmentalists it would have all the same harms and none of the benefits. But mining for materials related to our renewable transition forces environmental activists and policymakers to confront trade-offs that traditionally were problems blamed on the opposition. Whatever raw materials aren't produced in places like Rhyolite Ridge are produced somewhere else, places where mining may put other species and other human lives at risk. Climate policies like the Paris Accords and the Green New Deal ...have pushed for a dramatic increase in renewable technology. But don't tackle the tough decision-making those increases will require. This isn't a problem that the environmental movement is ignoring, per se. But conservatives, sometimes in bad faith, have leapt on this reality. Claiming that the cure for climate change is worse than the problem. And they're not just talking about for the environment. They're also talking about U.S. security. Rare earth metals like lithium require a complicated chemical process in order to become useful from a commercial point of view. Here's Emily Hirsch.
4: China blew everybody out of the supply chain by providing capital to and in essence, subsidizing that second step. The U.S. realized that we are dependent on China for this chemical that's needed to make permanent magnets, which we need to make electric vehicle motors, that's needed to make regular vehicle motors, that's needed to make windmills, that's needed to make missile guidance systems. But even that realization has not been enough to change the behavior.
3: National security hawks have seized on this fact to point out that because some mineral supply chains have grown largely outside the United States, dramatic growth in renewables puts money in the hands of the Chinese. That doesn't have to be the case for lithium, Emily argues, but it will be if we aren't willing to make trade-offs.
4: The critical minerals for the battery supply chain, they are in the United States. So why don't we extract them and process them in the United States? Because it's more expensive. Why is it more expensive? The United States has some of the highest environmental standards in the world. It's, you know, it's a reality.
0: there are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe,
1: please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipt, delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipt.com.
2: Welcome back to Outside In. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Producer Taylor Quimby just laid out that the lithium needed for the renewable energy transition isn't being mined in the United States. So where does it come from?
9: When we talk about governments or or economies that are dependent on natural resources, we mean the kind of most, most, most upstream um, part of, of a supply chain.
3: This is Thea Riofrancos, author of Resource Radicals about South American conflicts over oil and mining, and an upcoming book called Brine to Batteries. She likes alliteration.
9: Yeah, I know. It's a, I, Apparently it's a thing for me.
3: <laughs> Thea says that the trajectory of South American resource extraction starts 500 years ago with the Spanish conquistadors mining for precious metals.
9: When the Spanish first came, we were looking at a lot of gold and silver.
3: And continued into the modern era with agribusiness and petroleum products.
9: Oil, soy, yeah. beef, rubber, right, from the Amazon, before synthetic rubber was, was, was invented. Sugar, tobacco, mm-hmm. bananas, um, tropical fruits. Um, and
3: uh, that um, trajectory continues today us. in the form of lithium brines. People who know about this subject will have been wondering when I was going to mention that 60% of the world's lithium reserves, which is to say 60% of all the economically mineable lithium we currently know about, can be found underneath the massive salares or salt flats, of South America.
9: You know, you are... 7,500 feet in the air, but like around you there's mountains that go way taller than that, right? Some of them are snow-capped, some of them are volcanoes.
3: Salt flats are ancient desert lakes, closed basins, where shifting climate and geology led massive quantities of water to dry up, leaving behind a rich crust of minerals and salt. They're landscapes that sometimes get compared to the moon or to Mars.
9: So the whole expanse is like white, and gray, these little patches of like red, and all of these shades in between white and gray that you don't even know exist until you kind of see them. So it's just like a very odd,
3: like- The salt flats of Argentina, Chile, and Bolivia are also David Attenborough famous.
5: The vast salt flats of Chile's Atacama Desert were seemingly designed to repel life. Which animals are capable of conquering these lands? The flamingo, of course. More commonly recognized as pool inflatables or garden decorations. The
3: neon pink birds. What you won't see in nature documentaries, though, is that the edges of the salt flats are also home to dozens of indigenous communities. And what you also won't see is that in some cases, just miles away from nature reserves and flamingos, are the lithium brine plants.
9: The lithium is in this brine that's on that subsurface. And it is sucked out, you know, we can just think of it like a like a drinking straw or something. It is sucked out and it is then arrayed in these enormous, like many football field size, evaporation ponds.
3: They are in some cases literally bigger than nearby indigenous towns and objectively mesmerizing to look at. There are bright blue ponds next to greenish ones and brown ones, all of them perfect squares or other unnatural shapes. Do a Google image search for lithium brine ponds. You'll see what I mean. But how do they work? Well, these salt flats are some of the driest places on Earth. They're hot. There's almost no rainfall. So they pump the brines into ponds. Sunshine evaporates water. Mineral content increases. Once it's high enough, they pump it to another pond and the process keeps going. The brines get thicker and slushier as they move from pond to pond. And eventually, the lithium content is so high, they can move it to the next step for chemical processing.
9: They don't have to use a ton of, like, toxic chemicals or reagents to, like, help the concentration process. Mostly it's nature doing the work.
3: But by pumping out all of this underground brine from underneath these desert ecosystems and then letting it just evaporate into the air, lithium brine plants pose a different problem. They deplete groundwater
9: if you talk to anyone from any of those companies or watch a webinar with them or see them quoted, they will always say that brine and water are two separate things, unlike brine has like no human values so whatever, right? Um, no one else agrees with them. Um, and, and I mean, no one else, like, like regulators in the Chilean government, even those that are in favor of lithium development don't think that there's no relationship between brine and fresh water.
3: Activists, scientists, and community members have all warned The amount of water and brine being extracted from mining threatens to destabilize fragile ecosystems and economies. When mining companies deplete brines, Thea says, the fresh water that sits on top and around the brine is dragged down by gravity and other natural forces.
9: Regardless of whether the fresh water is directly being depleted, which it is, but regardless of that, and regardless of whether it's being directly contaminated, which it is, it's also literally being made less easy to access through the irrigation systems for farming and, and potable water.
3: This is why in some indigenous communities, you might see or hear a familiar phrase. Water is life. No to lithium. That being said, opposition isn't universal. I tried to get in touch with some of the people whose lives are directly touched by lithium mining in South America, but because of how remote these places are, and partly because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to get anybody from the salt flats on the phone.
5: You, you get the car and you can make two hours and you're going to see nothing. I mean nothing. But I was able to
3: talk to this gentleman, Argentine journalist Emiliano Gulo, who wrote about lithium mining for Amphibia magazine.
5: You're talking about people that are left alone by the state. by by everything by everyone
3: he admits that coming from buenos aires a 20-hour drive from Jujuy, the province where argentine lithium is predominantly mined he thought this story was pretty straightforward that lithium is just one more resource foreign companies are looking to capitalize on at the expense of local communities but it was more complicated than he thought
5: i wanted to to show this controversy i went Jujuy with an idea, and I came with two ideas. <laughs> you know. In his reporting, he
3: watched a group of 200 indigenous Koya protesters drive away a mining company drilling for lithium in the Guayatoyak Lagoon, north of the Salt Flats. The company had shown up without any prior or informed consent from local communities.
5: The logical always is, okay let's let's start digging with uh, with no permission with no authorization. and if there if there any problem, okay, we'll see.
3: The people living here, in Argentina, but also in Chile and Bolivia, are demanding the right to prior and informed consent. For them, and the more populated towns where tourism feeds local economies, lithium poses a threat. But in the most remote areas, Emiliano says, some people felt differently. In Katua, a town of about 700, a lithium company promised residents to pave the roads and build a natural gas pipeline so they don't have to keep hauling in cylinders by truck.
5: In um, Katua, uh, we found these guys, that they were so anxious to start working with the mining company, with lithium company, they, they, are, they were happy, and that was that was was a shock because we 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 got there thinking okay this is so easy to to see no and it's not so easy
3: again here's Thea Rio Francos author of Resource Radicals
9: you know it, it's interesting i think that when there are pre-existing livelihoods People defend those livelihoods and are more resistant to the incursion of extraction. When there's a sense of just total lack of economic opportunity, people may be more willing to accept some of the promises of the mining company. Even in
3: communities like Katua, where locals are welcoming lithium extraction and hoping to see an economic boost, I was shocked to find out what a small impact these gargantuan operations can have. A 2019 survey by the Inter-American Development Bank showed only 12 people in Katua were employed by the mining industry and only 566 people in the whole province of Jujuy.
9: Because of actually how technologically advanced mining is these days, it's not very labor intensive. Like the picture in one's head of early 20th century coal mining, it's just like not how it works anymore. It's like robotics and AI and these self-driving machines. And so it doesn't create a ton of direct or well-renumerated or dignified labor. What it creates is like a service economy around the mine, right?
10: Extraction is normalized in the global south for everyone, uh, for us and for you.
3: This is Ramon Morales Balcazar, a founding member of the Plurinational Observatory of the Andean Salt Flats. When I spoke to him, he was in Mexico City where he goes to school. In a room with tall concrete walls, a towering skylight, lots of hanging plants, it was beautiful. But it sounded a little bit like a pool, FYI.
10: Between 20 and 25% of lithium in the world comes from Atacama Salt So that's not, cannot be sustainable. For about four years, the Plurinational Observatory
3: has been fighting expansion of lithium mining and raising awareness about the water issues that it threatens
10: livelihoods and ecosystems. So a lot of people thought that it would be impossible to stand against lithium mining because it's like a green mineral.
3: One thing that has made the group pretty successful, relatively speaking, is that they draw on a coalition from the entire area, sometimes reductively referred to as the lithium triangle.
10: A bunch of indigenous leaders, academics, some activists from uh, these three countries, and also from different nations, like Atacama or Likantai nation.
3: Still, it's an uphill battle, Ramon says. If you think the mining law of 1872 is lax, remember that the regulatory structures in most Latin American countries
10: are far more mining-friendly than what you'll see in the U.S. Because brine is cheaper. That's why they they like brine so much. It's just cheaper, and our regulations are super loose. Companies like uh, SQM, actually, they are involved in uh, corruption, uh, bribery, uh, they've been interfering, actually, in the environmental regulation itself.
3: SQM is a Chilean company, by the way, one of the biggest lithium producers in the world. The principal stockholder is the son-in-law of former Chilean dictator Pinochet. I asked Ramon what he thought about this situation in Nevada, where the Center for Biological Diversity
10: is fighting the Ioneer lithium mine
3: on account of the team's buckwheat.
10: Yeah, maybe that's another aspect of this coloniality behind um, extraction. So in Atacama Salt Flat, actually, uh, there are many species, uh, there are many plants. There is a lot actually to to save there, to to preserve. Uh, But for some reason, uh, nature in our side of the planet, it's totally disposable. And for some reason, a tiny plant in Nevada is not, which is good, you know? But it makes you think how people see you know, uh, themselves, nature, their duties actually towards nature, their nature, because it's theirs.
3: When you talk about the social and environmental costs of a renewable energy transition, the narrative inevitably starts to feel like a zero-sum game. Our electric vehicles? For the extinction of a flower. Or the water source? For a people and a desert ecosystem. Every person I spoke with for this story rejects that notion.
4: There's more research going into looking at the brines that occur alongside oil fields or the brines that are found in geothermal deposits.
7: There are promising technologies out there that allow for lithium to be extracted using an electrolysis process, and then water to be re-injected.
9: Car companies are getting concerned about this. And I don't want to say they have good motives. Their motives are their brand, right? But Volkswagen sent a team of observers to the Atacama Desert to to look into the supply chain issues, because they're like, you know, maybe our consumers...
3: There are promising new mining technologies that could reduce water waste, lithium recycling startups that could reduce our overall production needs, compacts that give communities more agency around mining projects that take place in their backyard. But most people I spoke with also acknowledged, with visible discomfort on Zoom, I might add, that the trade-offs aren't as utopian as we'd prefer.
0: You know, I guess the point here is that, like, just because we are transitioning to a future that's, that's powered by clean energy doesn't mean that we are going to um, relieve ourselves of the fundamental dynamics underlying, um, you know, extractive uh, industries. This
3: is Julian Brave Noisecat, Vice President of Policy and Strategy for the left-wing think tank Data for Progress. He says a lot of environmental justice advocates were driven to action because of oil, gas, and mineral projects that exploit Native communities, poor communities, and communities of color. So, understandably, the push for renewables is part of a desire to emancipate society from that paradigm. But action on climate change is needed urgently.
0: And, and, you know, this is something that I wish was not true, but I guess the reality of politics and policy is encountering truths that you wish were not there but are in fact there, Uh, which is that there may in some instances be a trade-off between uh, essentially just and equitable outcomes and um, the imperative to move very quickly. I think that that's largely a function of the fact that we've waited so long. For activists, that trade-off may be even harder
3: to swallow as time goes on. When I was speaking with battery analyst Chloe Holsinger, she said something that um, at the time I didn't quite now understand. Now is
6: actually a really good time to make an acquisition in various different parts of the lithium-ion battery value chain, you know, while vehicle sales are, um, you know, potentially going to fall due to a recession, or impacts of an economic recession.
3: It took me a minute to realize what um, she meant, which was that, Now is a great time for legacy fossil fuel companies, the ones that activists want to hold accountable for their actions in the past, like ExxonMobil or Shell, to get into the lithium game.
6: I personally don't think that we can make this huge energy transition to clean technologies without bringing along some of those older players.
3: Here's a weird truth to contend with. The first lithium-ion battery was patented by Nobel Prize winner Stan Whittingham in 1979 when he was working for ExxonMobil.
6: ExxonMobil played a key role in inventing lithium ion batteries, which they then had a mixed role after inventing them. (laughs) But, but, you know, they were there at the very beginning. Uh, So Partial credit.
7: (laughs) Right,
6: (laughs) exactly.
3: Of course, all of these trade-offs are built on the assumption that there is one we aren't willing to make, which is a world that isn't filled with electric vehicles. At least, not as many as you may have imagined. Here again is Thea Riofrancos.
9: Consensus in the U.S. seems to be we're all going to own Teslas or whatever. Maybe not Teslas, those are kind of expensive, but we're all going to own electric vehicles. We're going to swap in our ICE vehicles um, for electric vehicles. We're going to change... Nothing else. We don't need to change the highways. We don't need to change the fact that we have this privatized transit system. We don't need to change the suburbs, the built environment. What I think pains me the most is the idea that we're going to change nothing about the way that we consume or produce and just switch out like the energy source. And a lot of the environmental effects are going to remain.
3: So which future is it? The one where our lithium comes at the cost of traditional environmental and social concerns? The one where we change our behavior, even just a little, own one car instead of two. Or a future we haven't
7: yet dreamed up. It's very troubling because we don't have another paradigm in which to deploy. You know, we don't we don't have some alternate mining industry that isn't a bunch of shady operators and environmental villains to, to tap into.
3: In order to clean up our energy, someone, somewhere, is going to get their hands dirty. The question is who?
7: So, you know, I don't know, maybe I should quit my job and go into lithium extraction. Um, maybe Maybe that's the future. is all the environmentalists become uh, energy developers and mining executives? <laughs>
2: This episode of Outside In was produced by Taylor Quimby with me, Sam Evans-Brown, and Justine Paradise. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is director of Recycling Unobtainium. Special thanks to everybody who spoke to Taylor for this story. Vivas Kumar, Brett Birdsong, Sam Kalin, and Stan Whittingham. If you want to learn a lot more about the mining of lithium and other metals related to renewables, check out Emily Hirsch's podcast, The Minerals Manhattan Project. Also, please give us some money. We are a show that's supported by donations to a public radio station. Past donations have made this episode possible and future donations will make more episodes possible. If you can't give us money, please borrow a friend's phone and surreptitiously subscribe them to Outside In. I promise I won't rat you out. By the way, I am about to go on paternity leave. I will miss you all but you will not necessarily miss me because we have some more content planned for you and you may hear my voice on the podcast but you may just hear a little bit more from contributors for a little while and that's fine and great I just want to tell you all that there will be a new baby in my life music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio
5: Your milkshake.
7: I drink it up.
1: I live by routines, especially my same day delivery routine with shipped, Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped, Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com.
8: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.